This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Kevin DeCock. He has had a long and distinguished career, including director for CDC's HIV AIDS prevention, surveillance and epidemiology, director of CDC Kenya, director of WHO HIV AIDS, and director of CDC's Center for Global Health prior to his retirement in December of 2020. And I'm talking to Dr. Peter Drotman. He's the Editor-in-Chief of Emerging Infectious Diseases since 2001. And he was among the last physicians to see patients with smallpox when working for the WHO Smallpox Eradication Program in Bangladesh. And he was one of the first physicians to see patients with AIDS when it was newly discovered in 1981. Starting in 1982, he worked on HIV AIDS for the next 14 years. We'll be discussing the history of HIV AIDS and what we've learned along the 40 years. Welcome, Dr. DeCock and Dr. Drotman. Hi. In the interest of full disclosure, Kevin and I go back uh, quite a few years to the uh, late uh, 20th century when we both had uh, uh, training at the Los Angeles County University of Southern California uh, immense public hospital medical center. And as was common in that time when uh, uh, we were still learning the epidemiology of bloodborne pathogens, we encountered healthcare workers who sustained needle stick injuries and suffered dire consequences. Kevin actually being a liver fellow at the time, reviewed some of those cases. Please tell us what uh, what you learned and how that uh, uh, prompted your interest in in uh, preventing needle stick injuries, bloodborne pathogens. Thank you, Peter. Good to talk with you. Yes, I remember this. Um, in fact, I had to give grand rounds at LA County Hospital. Uh, I was a fellow and then uh, an assistant professor of medicine. And I gave grand rounds on the you know, recently introduced hepatitis B vaccine, which was an enormous advance and very important for healthcare workers. Um, I started my presentation by presenting very quickly um, three cases of hepatitis B, one who had fulminant uh, hepatitis with uh, fulminant liver failure and actually died. Um, another one had sort of typical, you know, unpleasant viral hepatitis with jaundice. And the third one um, went on to have chronic hepatitis B infection, which, of course, is a, uh, dangerous because it can progress to cirrhosis and uh, liver cancer. And I made the point, I just presented these, I said, you know, there's nothing unusual about uh, any of these three cases, except for the fact all of them over the, had been members of staff, members of the medical staff of L.A. County Hospital over the previous 10 years. And actually, one of them I looked after myself as a patient. Um, 
so that you know that was a pretty impressive experience. Um, and of course, the vaccine was a, a very important advance for healthcare workers um, who had you know to to prevent becoming infected from bloodborne exposure. It was, as you say, of course, HIV that really, in subsequent years, in the later in the in the, in the mid eighties, later in the eighties, really pushed the agenda of um, improving, uh, enhancing uh, safety in uh, healthcare settings and prevention of needle sticks. So, uh, tremendous advances and much attention, much investment, um, and really it was. It was HIV that, uh, that pushed all of that, and yeah, ever since, uh, I think you and I and others have remained interested in this issue of uh, uh, healthcare worker exposures to the blood-borne pathogens. But if I can just finish quickly by saying this whole thing of um, exposure in healthcare workers to pathogens remains immensely important, uh, and in the article that we've just published that we're talking about. We, you know, the, my co-authors and I talk about Ebola and, uh, and COVID-19. And, of course, in, uh, many healthcare workers have died of Ebola and of COVID-19. And this whole issue of, uh, of the um, uh, infection prevention and control in healthcare settings remains a neglected and very important issue in global health. So thank you for asking that. Yes, and it has even derivative uh, implications and issues with impinging as it does on injectable immunization programs and disposal of medical waste in uh, in parts of the world where it's difficult to dispose of things. You, you must encounter these issues in your uh, present uh, posting in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Anything you want to say about uh, uh, developments in that field? No, it's a very important point. Um, the, there, has been, there has been progress, inadequate progress, but there has been progress largely funded, again because of HIV, largely funded through PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, the big AIDS money that... Uh, you know, came in in the early 2000s. And here in Kenya, we did invest, CDC invested quite heavily in injection safety programs and um, laboratory safety and, as you correctly point out, the safe management of medical waste, all of which are sort of um, somewhat forgotten. Uh, we talk about blood safety, but a lot of people don't think about the the issue of waste management uh, is very important. Um, and uh, um, I, I'm very pleased that, again, it was the AIDS agenda and some of the AIDS money that led to some of these improvements, but there's an awful, there's an awful lot to do still. And the whole issue of nosocomial transmission of uh, different pathogens remains very, very important. Now, at the beginning of the uh, essay, it's in the... Uh in the journal, you have a leading quotation um, uh, by the late uh, Jonathan Mann. And we both knew him, we both worked with him, but a lot of our younger listeners will not recall his pioneering efforts uh, when he took the first 
CDC um, international AIDS uh, research and investigation posting in Central Africa when he founded uh, Pro Project SIDA uh, in Zaire, and he had been recruited from his previous post in North America of being the state epidemiologist of New Mexico. But he uh, kicked off the uh, international AIDS research, particularly in the Africa region, and eventually took up a post founding the AIDS uh, program at the WHO in Geneva, a program that you eventually took over. But please tell us a little bit about uh, Jonathan Mann, his work, his legacy, and uh, the developments at WHO and UNAIDS. Yes. Um, Jonathan was a pivotal figure in the early history of the AIDS pandemic and has had lasting, lasting influence. And um, I should add that, you know, one of the co-authors um, of the, the the paper we're just publishing, Jim Curran, was John Mann's supervisor and a very good friend of his. Um, I've discussed this with Jim extensively, including in recent time, actually. And the thing that Jim always comes back to is John Mann's qualities of leadership. Um, he really was quite unique in how he galvanized people and led them, um, sometimes rather authoritatively, you know, sometimes with a, a pretty strong um, non-compromising authority and much of the time by sheer eloquence and brilliance. So, yeah, he was he's an ex-CIS officer. Uh, he was assigned to the state of New Mexico. As you said, he was the state epidemiologist for 10 years. And he was getting restless and uh, wanted another job or was looking for another job. And just at that time, uh, Jim Curran and helped by others such as Joe McCormick, who worked in uh, viral hemorrhagic fevers, um, learned about John, recruited him, and uh, Joe McCormick, who knew Africa, and, and including Zaire, quite well, um, went with Jonathan um, to visit. And anyway, long story short, John set up this research site in Kinshasa, was there for only two years, which is a very short time, really. But the research they did and the attention they brought to the issue was utterly remarkable. Uh, he went from there. He was recruited um, to set up the first program on AIDS in 1986 at WHO. And, um, and again, in, in a very short space of time, because he was only there for about, for about four years, just under four years. Uh, it was just astonishing what he achieved, how he brought the world's attention to this new disease. And, um, um, you know, it, it, his, again, his ability to capture the world's imagination and, and persuade people what needed to be done was quite unique. I'm glad you mentioned also that a lot of younger people don't even know who he is. If you give a talk on AIDS and say, who is Jonathan Mann? Many people don't know. Most people may not know. And it's, it's uh, you know, one of those sobering 
uh, illustrations of how history passes and contributions that individuals have made can easily get forgotten. Uh, but his, he, he was a unique figure. Uh, he left WHO. He resigned because of conflict with a new director general. He went on to do other important things and then tragically died in a plane crash in 1998, uh, along with his, uh, his second wife, Mary Lou Clements, who herself was a distinguished uh, um, researcher, vaccine researcher from Johns Hopkins. Um, yeah, many warm memories of John. Um, he, was, he had an enormous impact uh, on the world of AIDS and a lasting impact, particularly for linking health and human rights, but exposing the issues of vulnerability, um, fighting against exclusion and stigma and discrimination, and uh, really changing how we view uh, health problems globally. Let me stop there. We could talk about John for a long time. He was a remarkable individual. Indeed. In that uh, recounting, you mentioned uh, your co-author, Jim Curran, uh, uh, hiring Jonathan back in the um, early 1980s. And it was at that time that Jim Curran, director of the uh, AIDS uh, response out of the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, was um, uh, giving a great many talks, presentations, congressional testimonies, and others. And he would uh, use the uh, analogy of once you see AIDS patients in a community, there has already been HIV circulating in that community for a long period of time. And that follows on that by the time a person becomes clinically ill with AIDS, the virus has been in their body for a very long time. Thus, there is first an epidemic of HIV, often silent and unrecognized, then an epidemic of disease, and then an epidemic of death, and then an epidemic of basically terror and panic among the population as they witness people suffering and dying. And Jim was trying to promote the epidemic of response, the research and the um, addressing of the problem. And fortunately, that research and response effort has proven remarkably uh, successful. It's just that it's taken decades to develop truly effective uh, fruits. Do you think this uh, analogy and story holds up and uh, is useful for us to uh, to learn and apply to the uh, to the future? Yeah, I, th I think it is. I think it is. Um, again, in this article, and that Jim is a co-author on, and of course the other, the third author is uh, Harold Jaffe, who was a leading uh, epidemiologist working for Jim um, in the early 1980s and contributed a lot. Uh, to CDC's work in HIV, enormous amount. Um, I, I think it is um, a useful analogy. Um, 
And it, 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 I think it also is useful then to apply it to different infectious diseases, epidemic-prone diseases. Um, of course, in the paper, we sort of discuss a little bit the similarities and differences between uh, HIV, um, Ebola, and SARS coronavirus, which clearly have been the most important epidemics in the you know, last 40 years. Um, I mean, there's another important one, but those three really do stick out. And, of course, we're struggling with the pandemic right now. Um, HIV is rather special because of this long asymptomatic period, which allows for silent spread, uh, so that by the time those, you know, five iconic cases were described in Los Angeles in 1981, there were already hundreds of thousands of people infected, probably millions around the world. Um, uh, you know, especially in Africa, where it had been present for longer, uh, but also in the United States. There must have been tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of men who have sex with men infected. Um, and, and then later the disease, and then, yes, the response. And actually, Jonathan Mann made a similar comment, and he talked about the epidemic, a silent epidemic of HIV, then the, the epidemic of disease and death, and then thirdly, the social and political consequences of all of this. So I, I think that is a framework, those are two frameworks that, that do, are worth thinking about and, uh, and, and actually can even be applied to how we're dealing with uh, this uh, you know, very difficult pandemic today. So one of the areas where Unfortunately, we have not made the kind of progress we have been uh, hoping for and even anticipating is the development of an HIV uh, vaccine, which contrasts sharply with the amazing progress made in the uh, SARS coronavirus 2 vaccine development. I think Sarah may have a... Uh, question or two about this. Is there a vaccine on the horizon for HIV? Uh, are the new mNRA vaccines for COVID a game changer that could lead the way to vaccines for these more difficult diseases? Yeah. Um, yeah, let me... It, it's, a, it's a question that's often raised, of course. Um, it's not, I've, I've come across this so frequently, people asking... Why don't we have an HIV vaccine? We've been, you know, been talking about it for so long, and yet in a year we have a vaccine for SARS coronavirus type 2. Um, and I, I've been talking a little bit about this with UNAID, who I'm doing some consulting for um, in relation to their science work. Um, for HIV, you know, unfortunately, you know, it, it's the virus. Um, you know, there's a joke, the WAGs will say, um, you'll have an HIV vaccine in 10 years, just as uh, has been the case for the last three decades, because that's been the prediction since the beginning. But the reason we don't have one is really to do with the virus. It's a very difficult virus. And what, as you know, um, somebody is exposed to HIV, becomes infected, uh, it turns into a chronic infection. There is an immune response, but the immune response does not eliminate the infection. And there are people who 
uh, produce so-called broadly neutralizing antibodies. There are some people who do that, but it takes a couple of years, and again, it doesn't eliminate the infection. So what we're asking from an HIV vaccine is to do better than nature. Now, that's really difficult. That's really difficult. And if you look at other infectious diseases which are chronic and where the immune response does not eliminate or completely control the uh, infection, um, again, we, we, we are finding it difficult to get effective vaccines. You can think of tuberculosis, malaria. There is progress in malaria, but not necessarily a home run yet, um, and some other parasitic diseases and so on. Uh, and without going into technical details, it's just really difficult things about the HIV virus um, in relation to anti-protected antibodies and an effective vaccine. Um, so in a way, SARS coronavirus is easier because it's sort of a more typical infection. You get infected, you can get very sick, some people will die, but on the whole, those who survive have immunity and, uh, and, and that's the type of immunity we're eliciting with these, uh, these new vaccines. Now, there are lots of questions, of course, the issue of long COVID. Some people seem to remain unwell for a very long time, and we don't know the, the natural course of that, and we don't, complete, we don't understand it. Um, but uh, it, in general, it's sort of an easier immunological situation for vaccine development. Of course, the, I, th I think a lot of people would say that the science that went into delivering a, a vaccine for COVID-19, for SARS coronavirus, uh, benefited greatly from the enormous investment that has gone into um, HIV vaccine research. You know, research has not gone on for several decades, um, and it remains, uh, uh, you know, a leading topic, uh, a leading priority in research. If you look at the NIH website, you know, the two... Uh, primary um, areas of the, to which they attach the greatest importance are uh, vaccine research for HIV and the quest for uh, the elusive cure of HIV. Isn't there um, something about the way HIV hides in cells that makes it hard to treat or vaccinate? It's, yes, you're right, Sarah. It is one of the, it, it's one of the difficulties. It's not the only difficulty, but it is one of them. It, and that is the fact that when HIV um, infects someone, it, um, it, it, it actually integrates its genetic material into the host's genetic material, into the host genome. And um, even when people are on suppressive therapy, full suppressive therapy with antiretroviral drugs, um, these cells carrying virus in latent form are still there. And if you take the drugs away, the, the virus tends to come back. So, yes, it, it, it hides in so-called reservoirs. And uh, that's one of the technically very difficult issues to deal with. Dr. DeCock, how have you remained involved in HIV-AIDS work over the last 40 years? Well, my, um, you know, my interest started, um, as we were discussing with Peter, my interest started when I was at, uh, uh, or my involvement started when I was working in Los Angeles, uh, starting in 1983. And of course, I was, I was working in liver disease, and my research interest was in viral hepatitis. 
But of course, the populations affected by hepatitis uh, viruses were uh, overlapped tremendously with um, the groups um, infected with or at risk for HIV. So I became interested then, and really by the time I left Los Angeles, I, um, I was really more interested in HIV. And I was particularly interested in the issue of HIV in Africa because so little was known about it, and I had worked in Africa. I worked at the University of Nairobi in Kenya from 1979 to 82 uh, before I went to L.A. And, uh, you know, the, the overlap between these different issues was just fascinating to me. So when I went to CDC, uh, I worked, my boss was Joe McCormick, who, as I said earlier, was head of the hemorrhagic fever group, dealing with Ebola, Lassa, Marburg, and those kinds of viruses. But he, he was also interested in HIV in Africa, and we collaborated with Jim Curran and folks that Jim supervised, and it really went from there. Um, and so I, uh, I've been involved in it since, uh, since then, and it's been really the main part of my work over all those years. If perhaps you might want to say something if you were involved with the San Francisco uh, hepatitis B vaccine cohort, where when the first hepatitis B vaccines were being developed, a large cohort of gay men um, were the initial population being uh, investigated for the development of that vaccine. And of course, it was because of the overlapping epidemiology of hepatitis B virus and HIV that a great many men in that vaccine cohort were diagnosed with AIDS. And there was immense concern and worry that before we knew about HIV, that it might be that vaccine that was somehow linked to the development of AIDS. Were you involved in that research? I wasn't involved directly um, in the San Francisco cohort work because it was before I joined CDC, but I followed all that stuff. And the study of hepatitis B, uh, the, the science of hepatitis B, was immensely important for um, understanding AIDS and proposing a model for how, you know, the putative, the still theoretical infectious cause of AIDS was being transmitted. And I think CDC, uh, particularly Harold Chaffee and Jim Curran, played an important role in, you know, proposing that model, um, making the argument for this being an infection when initially that wasn't, you know, that wasn't proven and some people didn't believe it. Um, but, but obviously it stood the test of time. And then the French group were the first to isolate uh, HIV in late 1983. For which they received a Nobel Prize. Yes, that's right. The concerns you're talking about was that the first vaccine, hepatitis B, was derived from um, plasma collected from gay men in chronically infected with hepatitis B. They, the surface antigen of the virus was extracted, and that was the basis of... Um, of the vaccine. That, I mean, it was the surface antigen which elicits uh, an immune response, 
effective immune response. And it is derived from the plasma of uh, gay men, who, of course, had a, at that time, unknown, but probably high, rate of uh, prevalence of HIV infection. So there was a lot of concern about that. Unfortunately, this was, it was not dangerous uh, because of the, the ways that um, the vaccine preparation had been, um, you know, sterilized and all the rest of it. Um, but very rapidly, advances in molecular biology led to other ways of, um, um, you know, getting, uh, getting uh, surface antigen produced for vaccine um, delivery, advances in cloning and so on. Um, so that, that was only the case, um, you know, for a certain period of time. However, we did do some interesting studies in Los Angeles on rates of HIV infection in different groups with hepatitis, different types of hepatitis, over time. And we were able to show retrospectively that the first documented infection that we had with HIV was back in, actually, in 1978. Now, remember, these first AIDS cases were described in 81. Um, there were already gay men in L.A. infected back in uh, 78, and there was a very, very strong overlap or um, co-infection later in men who had uh, hepatitis delta virus, another type of hepatitis, um, which was, when I was there, there was a, obviously an outbreak going on in gay men. And we later showed that actually about 80 to 85% of gay men with delta, hepatitis delta virus, were actually also infected with HIV. So very strong overlap in the in certain populations in these different infections. I think we might be remiss if we don't give some credit to the gay community and the collective willingness to support medical research, even as people were suffering and dying. Some of them, on their deathbeds, even would uh, willingly provide information and blood and other samples to promote uh, research into these uh, viruses, despite there being widespread stigmatization and, and prejudice far different than our current uh, uh, way that uh, society, at least in North America, treats the, uh, the, the gay community. I'm sure you ran into that issue, and I'm sure you're impressed by the progress that has been made. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And I think Jim Curran and Harold uh, talk about that quite a lot. And as does their colleague Bill Darrow, the sociologist who worked with them. Yes. You know, not only were men who were ill prepared to collaborate, but, of course, activism sprung up when activists pushed for research and Tony Fauci um, speaks very eloquently about, Fauci from NIH speaks very eloquently about the community and how they pushed NIH uh, and then the Food and Drug Administration to, to do things differently. In a way, this also takes us back to Jonathan Mann, who, when he was at WHO in 86, 87, in those, those years, he, he 
pushed for involvement of communities and representation of uh, people with HIV in all of these discussions, and that was completely new. That, um, you know, that, that, that hadn't happened at WHO before, and it's pretty revolutionary. Um, the whole issue of community involvement uh, has changed because of uh, HIV and AIDS. But let me just finish this comment by also saying, you know, stigma and discrimination are still major issues. And in Africa, homophobia is a very, very potent force. And, uh, you know, the advances we've seen, the progressive ideas and acceptance of different uh, sexual minorities and so on, this is not worldwide at all. And Africa particularly, uh, and of course there are gay men everywhere, of course there are people with same-sex preference everywhere in the world. But it's a it's a difficult issue in Africa, and remains so. Yeah, I have a bit of an anecdote involving Jonathan. When he was in WHO Geneva, they're addressing the panic and fear and prejudice extended to sports. And I was the CDC sports medicine. Uh, consultant to Jonathan as he gathered the International Olympic Committee, the Medical Foundation, and others to address HIV-infected athletes and their participation in the Olympic Games. And we devised a rational uh, uh, set of guidelines for the uh, uh, 88 and 92 Olympics. You may or may not recall that was the first Olympics that had the United States basketball dream team that included uh, Magic Johnson, a all-star NBA player who disclosed that he had HIV. Once he made that disclosure, he never played another game in the NBA but he did play in the Barcelona Olympic Games and did so safely, I might add. And But those guidelines that Jonathan helped organize became accepted across a great many sports, professional, collegiate, uh, community uh, uh, levels. So he was a leader in a great many ways, and uh, he addressed the fear of AIDS and rational reaction to AIDS in a great many venues for which we respect him. Dr. Dakar, I understand you are living in Nairobi. Why there, and what are you doing with your days now that you've retired? Well, my well, first of all, I've been living in Nairobi since late 2012. Uh, so I've been living in the last eight years because um, CDC assigned me here and uh, extended me, and my family is Kenyan. So uh, this is one of my homes. And uh, I, as, as you know, I retired from CDC at the end of December 2020. Um, 
I'm doing uh, some consulting work um, on uh, COVID-19 as well as on HIV. Um, so I, my days are not that different from last year when we were also working from home. Um, so that's why I'm here. And unfortunately, international travel is not easy and probably best avoided right now. So um, I do feel a bit, it's not that I'm stuck, but I feel a bit uh, frustrated at the lack of mobility. But uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm consulting and uh, doing some of this and that and doing some writing and so on. I'm still, it doesn't feel that different, except I don't get a a CDC salary anymore. (laughs) How has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted Nairobi uh, and the rest of Africa for that matter? It's very complicated. Um, I think this pandemic is increasingly settling on poorer parts of the world and is, is, is having and going to have its greatest impact in low- and middle-income countries. The saving grace for Africa is the age of the population. Um, as we all know, the major risk factors for adverse outcome in terms of severe disease or death from SARS-CoV-2, the major risk factors are firstly age and then secondly other comorbidities. Now, the median age in uh, many African countries is about 20 or even less. I think in Kenya it's 20 and Uganda, I think it's 18 or 19. Um, so, I mean, this is a you know, a very young population, 50% of the population under the age of 20. And that, of course, is protected across the continent. That said, um, there is gross under-testing, under-recognition, under-diagnosis of uh, infection. And infection, I think, has spread quite widely, is spreading widely. And we have seen waves of We've now seen three waves in Kenya, Nairobi most heavily affected. We're just coming out of one, the last one, the third one. And it was severe. The hospitals were full. The intensive care beds were full. A lot of people died. Um, If you look at the cases that are reported, they behave the same as everywhere else. Very strong age association with bad outcomes (laughs) and so forth. And overall case fatality rates in reported cases, about 1.8%, not very different from elsewhere. Um, it, it's this issue of under-reporting, under-diagnosis, and very poor uh, mortality statistics population, <laughs> level mortality statistics. So it's very difficult to get insight into excess mortality, uh, but unquestionably it's there. So th- there's a real urgency to get vaccine out into the world, and it, we're woefully behind. And it's very painful, I think, to see, you know, the necessary, understandable, but, but still the discussions of vaccinating children and young adolescents in high-income countries, and here even healthcare workers are not getting access to vaccine. So it's a very troubling situation. Dr. DeCock, if you could have one wish for the future of public health, what would it be? <laughs> um, 
I guess I would ask for two wishes, actually. Um, one is science. Um, public health policy must be driven by science. Science must drive public health policy. And I think, by and large, we've seen that with HIV, and that's why, you know, again, to go back to the article, I think we make the point that the AIDS experience wasn't always perfect by any means. There certainly have been major issues and flaws, but, but it's still, I think we can be proud of a lot of what's been achieved. And it, it's sort of a benchmark against which to compare other responses or other public health challenges. So, you know, we've got to keep the science going and make sure that drives the policy. But secondly, you know, public health is not just about interventions. It is about, you know, um, social determinants. Um, it's about people's socioeconomic standards. It's about politics. It's about commitment. And so I, I guess my second wish would be that we, you know, we increase global equity. Um, I think it was always Bill Fage, um who said that the philosophic basis um, of public health is social justice. So I guess the second thing I would you know, plead for is greater equity and, uh, and social justice. It's by itself, which those things alone do so much for public health. Look at the history of tuberculosis, uh, where deaths from TB began to decline long before we had drugs for TB, uh, and that's because of social issues. So that would be my, my double answer to your single question. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. DeCock and Dr. Drotman. Well, thank you. We appreciate the uh, support, and we appreciate your sticking with this topic and uh, providing us with uh, updates from time to time. All the best. Yes, and I, I said to my co-authors, and I'll hold you to this, maybe we should meet again in 10 years. It's a date. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the June 2021 article, Reflections on 40 Years of AIDS, online at cdc.gov EID. You can also find the Reflections on 30 Years of AIDS podcast there, which we recorded 10 years ago, also with Dr. DeCock. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.